Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast, where we deal with all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade to globalization and organics. Today, we continue with the theme of community-supported agriculture as we speak with Monty Skarsgård of Los Poblanos Organic Farm, located right here in our hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Among many other things, Monty explains how CSA makes our communities more free and democratic. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the interview. Today we're with Monty Skarsgård of Los Poblanos, a community-supported agriculture farm here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, Monty, why don't you get started by telling us what the name of the farm is and where it's located? It's uh, Los Poblanos Organics, and it is located off Rio Grande Boulevard, which is north of Montaño and not in the North Valley of Albuquerque. And why don't you start by uh, telling us about your personal background and history? Okay. Um, started out actually from Albuquerque, uh, born and raised here, and... When I was 18, I left after high school and did uh, my undergraduate studies at U- University of California at Santa Barbara um, and worked with some people out there doing more like landscape uh, work out there, but got introduced to the kind of the organic agriculture movement for the first time, and that was in like 96, um, and then after I was working in, in nurseries and stuff out there um, with different plants and stuff, and then had read about our program in, uh, at University of California, Santa Cruz, that was doing an organic internship, apprenticeship program. And at that point, went up there for seven months and get um, the program up there. And after that, that was in 2000. Um, and then after that, found out there's a USDA has got a, a website called ATRA um, that you can find internships and apprenticeships for organic farms across the U.S., and uh, found a farm up in Seattle, Washington, called Jubilee Farm, and uh, went up there for two years and did kind of extended my apprenticeship and did some uh, farm management with, with a farmer up there, and um, realized at that point that I was pretty much ready to, to get back to the um, to New Mexico and get back to the Southwest and um, start my own farm at that time. Okay, so uh, could you tell us specifically how you got involved with community-supported agriculture? Uh, how did how did that uh, idea get presented to you, and how did you decide that that's how you wanted to farm? That's um, the uh, at, at the University of uh, at Santa Cruz at our program. There was we pretty much did all sorts of different marketing models uh, from farmers markets, um, and then did did um, learn about the CSA out there. And we had a 100-member CSA, and I just really liked the idea of it, of people, you know, signing up and supporting a farm, um, not really knowing what they were going to get each week in the box. Uh, the box kind of what we call it, by the way. Um, so, yeah, so what, not knowing what they were going to get in the, every week as far as produce, but just knowing that everything was going to be uh, fresh and certified organic and it was really neat and, and started to kind of expand my, my own like cooking and culinary um, love, I, I guess, at that time as well, uh, just by seeing, kind of doing that, having seasonal 
food and, and having that drive your um, kind of diet and stuff rather than having recipes drive it. And so it was just a really neat uh, model at that point that I that I saw people kind of really turning on to. And then the farm that I was at up in Seattle at Jubilee Farm um, was very very similar to that. We just did um, 98% of our business was through a CSA program where people had to come out to the farm and pick up their produce and see the goats and the chickens and pigs and all that stuff. And it was just great to see the families and individuals just connect to the farm and um, start to really, I guess, take some ownership in their food and to see where who's growing it. And um, it was just it was just a really neat thing. And so coming out to, coming back to Albuquerque, um, I'd seen that model in, in a couple different ways of it. There's, um, there's a lot of ways people do it. They can do it where um, everything is off your farm, or you can also do it by, as we do it, it's, it's kind of a cooperative thing with, with growers in the area and the region, um, and so that we can grow as much as we can. And then there's limitations that we have in, in Albuquerque for what we can grow and um, you know work with other growers up in Colorado and Texas and Arizona and California to be able to bring stuff in um, to keep um, the diversity of our box pretty much throughout the year. So we were able to go 52 weeks a year and um, keep people eating fresh organic stuff. Wow. So tell me, how, how did you uh, acquire the land that you're farming on now? The land, that, that's uh, the Armin and Penny Remby uh, family in Albuquerque here. They um, own the land. They've got a 25-acre estate, um, and they also operate a bed and breakfast down there. So what we were looking to, to do is to almost do like an organic retreat um, where people could come out. Um, the buildings themselves, the inn is, is very beautiful, but it's pretty rustic. It's not like a five-star hotel where you're going to have all the amenities and stuff. The amenities really are the views, the history of the place, um, you know, and then being on a working farm and, and just having a lot of space to kind of spread out and take nice walks and stuff like that. So we um, got together and, and our business plan, and they had just started the bed and breakfast about a year before. That was in 2003, and they started it in 2002. Um, and, yeah, so their kind of vision for the for the ranch and for the farm really coincided with what um, my wife and I were really trying to do at the time is, you know, trying to find land in Albuquerque that would be, um, you know, in the city, that we wouldn't be commuting um, from the suburbs, you know, into into the city, and also to try and have a, a really educational farm that people would be able to to see um, and kind of watch the progress, you know, whether they come out once a week or whether they drive by it every day on their way to work, that it would just be a, a nice staple for the community to start to see that, um, you know, that a city farm is actually a viable option. And so that's, um, we lease the land, we do not own the land, uh, which is a big question we get asked a lot. And, um, yes, we've just got a, a solid lease with the, the family and a good uh, partnership with them. So could you tell us about, um, you know, obviously as, as you're talking, you, you mentioned that you're, you know, pretty much right smack dab in the middle of, of the city of Albuquerque. Um, what are some of the advantages and challenges of being in an urban setting? Some of the, uh, some of the obvious advantages, I guess, is, are the traffic. Um, there's a road that drives right by the farm and uh, the Speed limit is 25 miles an hour, and I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of like nine to 11,000 cars that drive by a day. Um, so the visibility of it compared to um, being out in the country somewhere it is a big thing. And, and to, um, to kind of become 
you know, top of the mind conscious for people as they think about organic produce or, or fresh produce in Albuquerque, they can almost picture the farm. Um, so that's one great thing as far as marketing is that our visibility is um, very high. Um, other advantages are, I guess, length of uh, trip to uh, – I, I knew some farmers in Seattle that had to you know, drive five, six hours just to get to a farmer's market that would be viable for them to, to make it worth their while. And for us, we've got a farmer's market. I mean, we do a market um, on our farm every Tuesday. Um, and so, I mean, it's coming from the fields to, you know, 10 feet, 20 feet away, um, which is great. The other farmer's markets that we do, one of them is less than a mile down the street, um, and then the other one is the, in downtown Albuquerque. And even for us to get to downtown Albuquerque from our farm is um, less than 10 minutes. So that's a, yeah, a great thing is that, you know, looking at the transportation issues and things like that that would be uh, challenging for most for a lot of small farmers. Um, and then the, I guess some of the drawbacks are you've got people, the more visible the farm is, and then in the city thing that we've got to tighten down our security a little bit. I've, you know, had a pickup truck stolen this year from the farm, and we have tools go missing and stuff like that, which um, I guess is kind of, it's going to happen in, in, the, in this, you know, being close to a city. So that stuff is, is frustrating to have um, have that happen, but um, something that we just kind of expect it's going to happen, and hopefully we can you know, minimize the damages. Um, and I don't, I, those are probably the biggest advantages and disadvantages that I, that I can think of right now. So it sounds like you've got a really good operation going, and, you know, you're you're pretty much directly connected to your consumers, which is a, stands in stark contrast to, you know, the industrial agricultural model that most Americans uh, get their food from. Um, I'm wondering... As I think about Albuquerque and as I listen to you talk about the process of gentrification, especially in the South Valley, you know, it's it sounds like you've put together a profitable enterprise and it's quite possible that your use of the land is the best and most profitable use of it. However, you know, all that land in the South Valley that's pretty much just growing alfalfa or lying fallow, you know, is considered nonproductive as farmland and it's pretty much being subdivided and sold off. Um, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about that process? And, uh, how do you square that with the fact that you've, you've created this really profitable enterprise and shown people the way in terms of CSA, uh, in this local community? Um, how come more people aren't doing it? I mean, why isn't this process being arrested? I think that I mean, the main thing is, and it really stems from the, the owners, who, the owners of the land. And in our case, we were very fortunate that, um, the Remby family had a like-minded vision of us of, of keeping the land in agricultural use. And so that's really the biggest thing right there is that the owners, um, you know, whoever that is of the land, needs to actually make that a conscious decision for them and, and make that a, a conscious effort that that is what they want to do with the land, that it's not a matter of, um, you know, selling it off. Because they could, um, the land in the North Valley right now is, they could subdivide that and sell it for $500,000 an acre is what stuff is going for directly across the street from us. So that's, I mean, on 25 acres, you know, it's $12.5 million right there that they're um, pretty much foregoing on and trying to, you know, say that uh, in a sense, like, it's a very community-building effort that the landowners are doing, even a lot more so than what we're trying to do. I mean, we're very fortunate to have that. And so if the landowners don't 
make that decision, then um, that's just going to keep happening. Um, and so if the money is more important, um, and it, it's difficult, and that's what people, you know, it, it's a very big motivating factor to, for people to sell off sell off land and um, put up houses, especially as, as the pressure of the population starts to come in. Um, and the, the, one of the things that I think I, in the South Valley that seems to be happening is that people like agriculture, but, you know, they also have to take the, again, like you were saying, the, with the good and the bad of it, um, people like to see open space. They like to see that, but they're also going to, you know, see see and smell horses and see and smell chickens, have a rooster crowing at four in the morning, have peacocks crowing. Um, so it's a matter of taking the, you know, the, I guess, idealism of of an organic farm and, and then kind of marrying that with the realities that people uh, really need to be able to do that. And then one, one thing that we're working with, um, Jay Remby, who is the son of, the owners of the land um, does have some land in the South Valley and trying to bring the two together that you can um, have the open space connected with the homes and so that um, you would almost have that neighborhood farm um, right there. So, that, you know, looking at putting in 150 homes along with um, an eight acre farm and so that it's profitable for the developer and then it's also profitable for, you know, we've got some open space and then you've got the community building of the farm. And, and so it's ideas like that that are um, pretty progressive, and I think that that's what people need to look at is that you can, and that it's actually that cities and counties need to be um, up for that as well, that, that instead of saying that every house needs to have a half an acre, every house, you know, to look at maybe smaller lot sizes with more open space, um, you know, for community property of, uh, of the development, um, and so it's a lot of, I guess, forethinking and stuff like that, that that counties and cities need to do, along with developers, um, that people can, it can be profitable and still be a nice thing, a nice thing for the uh, the city and the county to kind of fall back on. Yeah, well, I, we could talk about these uh, social and economic issues probably for hours, but I just wanted to uh, make another comment before I move on to some of the more technical aspects of, of your farming operation. Um but you know, even even in communities that have already been subdivided and developed, like right where I, by by where I live, there's an elementary school, and you know there's a huge lawn that's ostensibly for playing soccer on, um, and it's the biggest piece of land you know within a couple square miles, I suppose, and that's not really being put to any productive use whatsoever. And you know what would be better than a farm for the kids to learn more and to eat healthier and and all those benefits unfortunately um you know the the parents and the teachers don't probably quite see it that way yeah um so you know the land is there it's just it's just as you're saying kind of having a vision and a commitment to it more than that's really the commitment such a huge thing it's um you know it sounds great to say i want to have green space and open space and i want to have a farm around me but somebody's got to do it and and even in albuquerque you know it's um, maybe 700,000 people in the outlying area in Albuquerque, but there's not that many farmers. We don't have that many, um, you know, a 10-acre farm in this area is considered a big farm, and it's not. It's not a big farm at all, and, and even you can grow a lot of food on 10 acres, but um, 700,000 mouths are, that takes a lot of food to keep that community going, and so uh, really, I mean, we just, we need to have more growers um, getting back into the fields. I mean, nationwide, even not just a matter of Albuquerque, but I think this is just a microcosm of what's happening uh, throughout the Midwest and even on the on the east and west coast as well. 
Sure, and there's there's a chronic shortage of capital to do something like that. I mean, even if you have a willing grower, yep. um, as I'm sure you're very well aware, it's going to take a lot of capital to take that land and turn it into something that's really going to produce and be sustainable over the long term. Yeah, so, that's, that's a fact. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I want to ask you um, more from an agroecological perspective. Why is it difficult to be in the Southwest? The South, um, I... The number one reason is probably the one that comes to mind for most people would be the water issue. Um, there's, yeah, just tr- trying to, you know, people that we get a lot of people that say, hey, I've got some land, do you want to use it? Um, and at first it's like enticing, but when you get into it, it really gets down to what's the availability of water, how clean is the water, is it? Um, and so for us, what we have really um, need to have actually is well access so that it's, tw- um, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week that we have access if if we need it. Not that we use it that much, but if we do need it, we need to have um, access for um, to the water. Um, the other big issue that I've um, it's been very different than growing in California and growing in in Washington State is um, the climate change is so so quick. It's like when you've got a lot of water and stuff like um, in the Northwest and along California, it's more temperate, and so the um, spring comes along and then summer, you know, slowly after that. But in the Southwest and the high desert, you know, we can have 30 to 40 degree, uh, changes from the, the day to the nighttime. And so that's very difficult, um, plants to kind of get them, um, used to that and growing. So, you know, that you get things happening, um, like lettuce is a good example that we've got a pretty short window in the spring for lettuce because it goes from being very cold and even freezing at night, um, to being 95 degrees during the day and lettuce doesn't like that very much and so it gets bitter and then it makes it difficult so whereas the temperate part of of california and washington uh, where you can grow lettuce throughout the you know the spring and into the summer and into the fall there's really no time of the year that you can't do it what we've had to really adapt to is almost um i call it like a niche farming where you really have to know um the times that you can get stuff in and do it and and be able to plant them and then harvest them um, and it's it's difficult. It's taken uh, quite a few years, and I still have a, a ton to learn. But um, it's it's difficult to know to know understand the plant families that we're dealing with, um, and then to be able to know what time of year we can get them in, um, and still be able to harvest them. Um, and so that's that's a big thing around here is the kind of the extremities of it. That it's um, you know you've got the cold nights you've got the wind and you've got super hot days and they all um i, I feel like our spring is really short it's not a very nice spring as it goes from you know freezing nights to, to to summertime very quickly and which is difficult for plants trying to get their bearings yeah this um, this is a pretty year. a pretty harsh climate it's it's real windy in the spring and we get pretty heavy hail as well sometimes yeah and that's we, yeah we've had you know big losses with hail luckily i've not had complete losses with it but um yeah, you come out and your spinach is torn up, and um, it's it's yeah, it's a very it's a challenging place, and that's kind of what I like about it is, is that um, every year is kind of poses new challenges, and you know some years are bad insect years, and some years are not so much, and um, it's definitely a very challenging place to grow, and that's I mean I really enjoy that aspect of it. To try and it's an interesting puzzle and game trying to put together every year, so. Who benefits from a CSA like Los Poblanos? Um, I, I mean, really, the uh, pretty much everybody involved. With it. I think that we've got a really nice um, group of people that, that on the working aspect of it that we really try and 
um, you know, pay people a living wage for the area, um, have benefits for them. And one of the benefits besides, I mean, just health and stuff like that is, is eating, I mean, great food. And so, um, on, on our kind of employee aspect, I think that it works very well that way. And just the community in general, having the access to, um, great food. And also what we try and do is it's almost getting back to the thing where you have fun with your food. I mean, it's like, I was kind of laugh about the thing with like the mom telling the child not to play with their food, but um, we encourage that. You know, there's there's so many meat, like you're talking about the different cultivars and stuff. There's tons of different fun varieties of melons and, I mean, everything, you know, purple carrots and green uh, cauliflower and all sorts of fun stuff that if you just saw it in a store, you probably wouldn't get it. Um, and for some, you know, those are the ones that we really like to try and highlight and, and try and make the CSA different because of that, because, a lot of times it's that uniqueness that people um, really get turned on to the food with and realize that the diversity of, of produce is really big, and we end up seeing such a small uh, section of it in the grocery store, and everything has become so monotonous, I feel like, in the grocery store. There's, um, you know, the carrots look the same, tomatoes look the same, and it's, um, you know, really trying to break that down and, and bring in, you know, purple and white potatoes and different stuff like that so that people can... Um, I guess fall in love with the food again. It seems that as much as we get away from our kind of agrarian roots, it, there's a seed that's always there, and it, and it's planted like in so many different ways. People that you know, I hear people talk about. Oh, this reminds me of my grand, you know, my grandmother's garden when I was growing up. This reminds me of a school a school field trip that I took when I was growing up. And at some time in our life, no matter you know if we live in the dead of city or or out in the country, at some point in our life. Um, we've been exposed to a farm, even if it was, um, I mean, actual farm tour or even just like a, the idea of it, a book or something that just kind of tempts our palate a little bit. And it's neat to see people um, turning on to that again um, and really taking the farm and, and just taking ownership in it. Um, it. It's neat to see everyone just get excited about it and also to see this is our fourth season. But for me to be able to see some of the kids that, who were born um, when we when we first started out, and to see them getting bigger, and to see them, you know, eating beets when when parents, you know, say the kids won't eat beets or kids hate broccoli and stuff, and to see um, these kids really, since they know where it's coming from, and um, that they eat that stuff, and it's like if you if you give kids good food, um, they're going to eat it, and it's neat to really see that and to get the you know f- positive feedback from parents about what their dinner table's looking like and what the kids are saying and stuff. And um, I just, uh, it, it excites me to see that, how much energy is going back into what we eat and that uh, people are asking the right questions about genetic modification and asking the right questions about pesticides and herbicides and all this stuff. Um, and it, it's very empowering for me to, to kind of keep going and keep working hard at this stuff to when I, when I see um, the feedback that we get from parents and individuals and stuff. Well, amen to that. That that sounds like uh, really we need a lot more people like that, and and uh, and more people to do what what you're doing. Um, what are some of the greatest limitations you've seen that pre- that prevent CSA from being more widespread? That's a good question. I think um, in a lot of areas it might be the population base um, where the land is kind of available and there's in abundance um it's almost a it's a tough thing like you know in a city um it's tough to find land and then out in the country it's tough to find people so 
Um, that's definitely for a CSA, <clears throat> excuse me for a CSA to really um, be economically viable. I think that you have to have a certain amount of, of a population base, um, and I'm not even sure what like, if there's an actual number on that. I think that the CSA would probably have to be close to about 100 people um, to be able to do that. And so, you know, if, if you have 100,000 people in the area, or maybe 60,000, something like that, that you could get um, be a very productive and economically viable CSA. Um, farmers, I mean, like we were talking about before there, it's difficult just to, you know, if there's a, a farmer that they're going to need help. And so, you know, is there um, good help around um, for somebody, even if they have the desire to do it, is there help for them to, to kind of make this come to fruition? Um, trying to think of, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know of many CSAs that have failed. And so it's tough for me to say like, oh, well, they, didn't do this or they didn't do that. I think that, um, you know, if you really just make the connection to, to the people that, um, they'll support it, it's, you know, and yeah, I'm not, I can't think of any CSAs that I know of, um, that have failed. So it's difficult to, for me to see what, uh, what would really keep people back from doing it. Right. Um, I think one of the things that limits CSAs so much is the ideology of it. And if we get too stuck and too, um, I guess, too, in a sense, too pure, like that we have to be able to make concessions and stuff like that, that um, things, you know, things change. It's taken 50 years for our um, agricultural models to get so far out of whack and we have to be able to expect that it might take another 50 years to get it back to where we want it to. Um, and so the things aren't going to happen overnight. And I think a lot of times what I've seen is that um, if people are, are too stuck on their ideals, that it's like it has to be this way now or I won't support it, <clears throat> that that's where the, the problems can really um, arise and, and take hold. That it, 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 it is going to be a slow kind of march back to it. But um, I do think that... And it's neat to see this happening. That um, to the, the small-scale producers are there is room for them in the CSA model. And so what we're trying to really do is that we've got our, our produce and stuff happening, that we can start to expand out. And we've got just out of the uh, a local organic uh, bakery that we're offering breads now. And then you just pit, you know, in getting uh, chickens and we do eggs from. Uh, we've got about 300 chickens that we do. But you can start to do you know, find somebody that likes to that raise pigs, and you can find somebody that um, likes to, you know, have bees and, and have, provide honey. And all these people that they don't have to be providing on a scale that they need to start selling to the grocery stores or, um, you know, the Costco or any of that stuff. It's like they can get to a certain size, and since there's not too many people touching it, there's, there's not a lot of markup on it. And so that's a neat thing for us is that we can keep – um, anything like that that we're working with other people on, we can keep our the prices very competitive and pass the you know the real the money back to the person who's doing it who who really deserves to be making the money on it, not you know the marketers or the advertising agencies. Um, and so that's that's one thing I, I really like to see it happening right now, and it, it's neat that um, seeing people that are that are small scale that they do maybe one thing they just grow apples and that they're too big to be doing farmers markets and they're too small to be providing to Whole Foods and Wild Oats. And so, our, you know, a CSA model like this is a great, great alternative for them um, and, and a lot more economically viable than than going to a fruit, you know, a fruit wholesaler or something like that. 
that a lot of growers need to do right now. And so I, I'm really excited that this will, um, it really can take off. I don't know if it would, you know, ever, I think there's, you know, as people, you know, the mainstream aspect of it is, is coming along, and a lot of a lot more people are knowing about it. Um, there's always going to be a Costco. There's always going to be a Walmart, and there's always going to be a McDonald's. I mean, those things aren't going to go away. But um, and so really, you know, my goal is not to try and get rid of them, but it's really just to, as long as there's options for people, then, you know, we can't – if the option is there, then people can, can choose or not choose. And it gets down to, you know, free will and if people make the choice and they're educated on it then that's great for them and so we really don't try and um turn anybody away or, or feel like it's a really you know secluded um society or something we try and be very open with getting people um informed about what we're doing and offering them come out and see what's happening right so you know according to that argument then csa actually makes our society more democratic and free that's yeah, and that's the whole thing i mean we we do a newsletter every week, and that's one of the things we t- touch on so much is that, um, you know, really for me having a, a local business, and I try and just pound that home to people that it is amazing how important our, the, the democracy of our dollar bills are, and that as we go out and vote every day, are we supporting um, not, not only like businesses that we like, but are we, you know, are we supporting the production practices that we like, um, and that you really. Um, you're you're responsible for the. I, I feel like that we are as a as a community and a society are responsible for the the place that we live in. And so if we don't like the place we live in, that we're almost at fault for it. And I get a lot of kind of flack for that. That you know it's like oh it's not the, it's not all the consumers' fault, but really it is. I mean, it's the consumers who are giving the money to keep these you know to say you know I really support what you're doing, and it means a lot to me when. When people are, I mean, turn over their money to us and say, you know, I, I support you having, you know, good business practices and, you know, it's good for the earth, good for my family. Um, that means a lot. And I think that people, that should never be downplayed um, too much because it's, it's so important for our community. Right. Okay. Well, we're about out of time. Um, thanks so much for your time. Uh, that was a great interview. And uh, we hope that your farm continues to grow and prosper in the future and that uh, you're able to form partnerships with more people so that more people have access to fresh local produce. Great. I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you. That does it for today's show, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again, Monty Skarsgård. All the best to Los Poblanos. Join us next week for an interview with Elizabeth Henderson. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the AgroInnovation.com podcast. Saludos. Saludos.